where the carrot is knowledge not the whip, social media whips each of U.S. into false positives. Whereas the school of hard knocks gives U.S. the experience to exercise our knowledge for a greater purpose, the power of knowledge is working on educating oneself, learn to earn with a skill to bill as an enterprising worker. The resources are immense. With podcasts and blogs available along with news and print media education is at your fingertips. Based on our personal motivation we can participate, even contribute. When I started this podcast two years ago it seemed I was wasting my time without an audience, but I have persevered. It is the audience that decides whether my mind can contribute ideas and opinions that will assist others in dealing with their own thoughts. I have decided to do my own recording of the scripts more often. Some lend themselves to having it recorded in a professional voice but it lacks my passion and commitment to the solutions that I propose. Today I have attached two such recordings starting with the following format of the topics over the next few days, weeks and months. Problem proposed solutions and outcome. Topics to be covered, always current problem events such as elections, environment, crime, drugs, leadership, corruption, ghettos, healthcare, monopsony, monopoly, globalization of trade, enterprise and peaceful coexistence, capitalism, socialism, marriage of investor capital, and human capital called humanism, stakeholders, and shareholders, third-party swing vote platform, quasi-reorganization of America, results of an American offensive plans, China capitalism, Russian capitalism, NBA, NFL, MLB, soccer role in international trade, and peaceful coexistence, premise that an NBA team in China and North Korea may be a way to compete not fight. Today's topic carrot is knowledge not the whip, the story of Death Valley, making something horrible great. So, I'm proposing an invention of a new wheel from real-life experiences. It is based on my first experience at managing a nursing home. This home was portrayed as the Death Valley Nursing Center coined by the surveyors who wanted it closed and was on the verge of bankruptcy when I took it on. In addition to being decertified, it did not have sufficient cash to pay the bills due to shrinking occupancy, mismanagement of staffing, cash flow problems, and operating losses. Sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it? In the first six months, things did not get much better. We had a drowning in the whirlpool when an agency therapist left a patient alone in the tub. Then the air conditioning system went down in August of 1987 during a heat wave. During this time, the State Department of Public Health openly indicated they wanted the facility closed. Then in November 1987, a snowstorm closed the access to the facility, a 206-bed skilled nursing home, for 72 straight hours. As a result, only one half of the staff reported to work. During that time, the delivery of care was better and more efficient than with a full complement of workers. Each time I tell this story, everyone nods, and attributes the phenomenon to adrenaline this reminds me of the story of four people in the nursing home business. They were named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Somebody got angry with that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody, when nobody did what anybody could have done. For example at Death Valley Nursing Home, not everyone did baths. Only two did baths and others did their specific assigned function, not a little bit of everything. From this formula the staff began to organize themselves into team objectives and outcomes. So goes the quasi-reorganization of Death Valley Skilled Nursing Home. Attached to this podcast is the moral of the story, told in my own words, anybody can do it, if they learn how and have the skill and motivation to be great at what we all aspire to be, not what we're told to be.
Good morning, America. This is Jerry Rhodes coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. Today's topic, what makes America the greatest and most vulnerable. Number one, free market enterprise. Not just pure capitalism or socialism, but Americanism. Monetary capital working with human capital to build enterprises. Where America is vulnerable, allowing oligarchs or monopolies or monopsonies to take over our media, social media, and distribution systems. Number two, enterprising American workers, not just robots called bots, but real live human beings, pursuing happiness through work for family, lifestyle, in other words, of a successful standard of living. Not just being rich and famous, ending in divorce and broken families, but just the opposite. Where America is vulnerable is the capitalist investors aren't sharing. The wealthy are not sharing within the enterprising system with the enterprising workers resulting in union strikes and destruction of our productivity system. So in other words, what we have here is a watering down of the strength of what I've, I'm calling Americanism, where capital, monetary capital, and human capital come together every day in our enterprises, small, medium, and large. We're losing that traction because we're battling each other within the two-party system, where I'm proposing that we have a third party representing enterprising Americans, not a labor union, not a fraternity, but a third party that is an enabler for pulling America together, not dividing it the way things are being done now. It really is the solution by building our foundation upon what makes us great, which is free market enterprise. Number three, ownership of property and businesses, which I'm calling enterprises, starting small and growing in prosperity and security, such as you own your own home, automobile, you have investments in an education, property, stocks, savings accounts, and retirement security. Where America is vulnerable is where our democracy is dominated by the golden rule. Those with the gold rule, and currently they're ruling with debt and deficit spending that is beyond liquidation. So what happens in in the enterprise or business world, if you get in that point where you are insolvent uh, and then become bankruptcy because you cannot pay your current liabilities of $31 trillion, you keep raising the debt limit beyond uh, conceivable li- uh, liquidation, and you're losing the uh, international or global balance of trade. Four, having a say in life's successes and problem solving. Being a problem solver, not a problem maker. 
a great team member and a winning organization or free enterprise business, either your own or someone else's, giving you the opportunity of ownership and profit sharing. When our government officials are being the checkers, not the enablers of expanding the gross domestic product and reducing or amortizing debt and interest and fixed burden costs created by more laws and more regulations, endangering the profit motive of the free market enterprise. In other words, government is the largest employer and the least accountable and the most uh, controlling in a free market. Five, having a vote in elections that are secure, where America is vulnerable due to a two-party system and gridlock, crying out for an alternative, calling for better leadership, where America is vulnerable due to not having a secure system by allowing everyone to vote regardless of citizenship and proof of that standing. Supposedly, in a democracy, anyone can run for office in a free country, but only those with the gold can run everything from mayor to governor to senator to house rep to president. Six, we must produce our products, not just sell them. Where America uses its small to medium-sized enterprises to create better products and processes before we start giving away our technology and trade agree- with trade agreements without capturing gross domestic product that exceeds our fixed overhead spent on big government and the war machine. <clears throat> America is vulnerable for not truly being the peacemaker to the world of autocrats and warlords who want to steal our prosperity for evil purposes. Seven, having leadership that is experienced in the first six successes despite vulnerabilities. Our leadership in the world is where America is most vulnerable. We have become the enabler of our competitors to own the supply lines as we have became have become the wholesalers and retailers for their products, which really originated as our products, using our inventions, technologies, and ideas by reverse injuring, engineering our profitable products and selling them back to us, plus shipping, distribution, and marketing costs. So in other words, we've given away this, the trade secrets and... They made them better, raised the price, added shipping and distribution costs to that, and all of a sudden we have a trillion dollar per year loss of profit. It's not just a trade imbalance. We're losing money every year and have been since World War II under some of these crazy trade agreements that were negotiated by politicians, uh, not business people. None of the, of the decision makers in, the, in those instances had ever invented a product, 
started the business, paid, covered the payroll, and made, made the company profitable. So how do we reverse this challenge to our sovereignty, solvency, and number one position in the world? America needs an offensive game plan of quasi-reorganization first, which means that we're going to cut fixed costs down to the break-even point. And right now, the biggest fixed cost is the cost of government. That's what drove businesses overseas. Not just that it was lower labor costs and then we say it was child labor in China and Vietnam and the Indo-China countries is false. Because now if you go and look on these videos, they're very prosperous. Everyone's working. And who are they working for? They're working for usually an autocracy or a warlord or a dictator. And they have very low overhead because they don't have unions. They don't have all of the regulations that have been heaped on American businesses. So we would have to cut our 24 million government workers, leaving aside the first responders, and get our fixed costs which is, is cost of government because they're not producing anything except laws and, and more regulations. So we need to get down to the break-even point. That's the way it's done in, in American businesses that are troubled. Um, uh, former, he wasn't former president, he ran for president. Romney, his company specialized in taking over businesses cutting their fixed costs down to the break-even point till they made profit and then sell them off. America needs to do the same thing under an offensive game plan, and it's called quasi-reorganization, Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. I've been told, oh, the federal government cannot go bankrupt. Well, within the Constitution, it says that the government shall not spend more than it takes in. So... Interpreting that, yes, we can do a quasi-reorganization game plan. So we have to correct the mistakes of past administrations, presidencies, legislatures, House, Senate, gridlock, all those things that have caused America to be in this position. And the current structure of our institutional branches of government have to be accountable. Instead of having two parties gridlocked and vying for control, we, have a, we will have a three or multiple party voting system with a third party swing vote that keeps our strengths in the, front, in the forefront of our national priorities. An international platform being peace, with strength of our natural resources, inventive small businesses or enterprises, and growth for the world gross domestic product, thereby solving poverty, hunger, using humanism. Okay, well now you read that. What are you really saying here? Humanism is to prevail over 
the other isms, the racism, Marxism, fascism, all of those negative connotations and gaining bad results. It's humanism where we, as a team, uh, format our efforts according to objectives. What do we want to accomplish? Well, we want to take back the trade imbalance. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you have to look at the current situation, what, what's causing us to lose the trade imbalance. Well, like I said, we have allowed somehow the technology and the trade secrets to be picked up, stolen, or um, an American company is now located in those countries. And for some reason or another, the technology and trade secrets leak out and picked up, reversed engineered, such in China, and then the price at, at the price, higher price, because the, it's not child labor. It's, it's, it's individuals in China pursuing the China dream. And they have a China dream. They have a China capitalism. And they have a chi China socialism. But it's not built on the same concept of free opportunity. So not everyone is equal here or there. But the pursuit of profit and the profit sharing is all based upon a central government. So it's a down, it's government down, not government up. It's not government of the people, for the people, by the people. It's for the government, for the Politburo, by the Politburo, of the Politburo. So their version of enterprise is not freedom. We have democracy. In China, they have autocracy. The difference there is that all individuals in this country are free to choose. In those countries, they are assigned, and they are now a part of an army, not a part of an enterprise. And so the dynamics of this is we will win every time if our game plan is organized and focused on objectives. So what's our objectives? Cut fixed costs. Well, what are the big, biggest fixed costs for trade? Well, it's shipping. You know, now we're trying to get it from a far-off country, such as China, across two seas and get it to the ports, the 20 American ports in this instance. It's, it's happening all over the world, but China has 5,400 cargo ships. They also make the containers that they put the products in. And there are other countries utilizing their ships and their containers. And they ship through both oceans to the East Coast and the West Coast. And they're charging us shipping. It's not loaded pricing. It's, it, it's loaded pricing, not landed pricing. So in other words, we're paying for the products at their price, which includes now the technology it took to reverse engineer it and make it better, and selling it to our wholesalers and retailers, plus shipping. 
So it's landed cost in the pricing. So we're now absorbing the cost of getting it from there to here. And then we are also absorbing the cost to unload it onto our um, uh, semi-trucks and our rail railroads, railroad cars, and then covering the cost of getting it to the wholesalers and retailers' distribution system. So by the time it gets to that point, we've lost money. What we need to do in this trade agreement, or it's got to be more dynamic now than a trade agreement, it has to be with a quasi-reorganization agreement with the companies in this country, this is our game plan. That At this point, they're supplying. We're not going to change that supply line quickly, but we can change how we uh, pay for their products. So now we reverse, we're not reverse engineering, we're reversing the very cost of distribution back to the supplier. And in doing that, their costs rise, and you say, well, they'll just increase the price. Well, that's, that's their problem. They then have to manage their costs better rather than just pricing on the basis of plus landed costs, and we lose the money. So what would this take? Well, this takes leadership. This takes a whole strategy that we turn the tables on those that export more to us than, than import from us. And in doing so, we then go back to making money on our technology, ideas, and enterprises. So now we're, not, now we're playing enterprise, monopoly board, not uh, a monopsony board which allows China to dictate Prices plus shipping plus distribution done by us on their schedule. So if their ships don't make it across the ocean quick enough, then we hurt for our distribution system. So they're going to have to be held accountable for the time it takes, for what it, what it costs once they get it here to be covered within the trade agreement. We're not going to erase global trade. The world has shrunk to the point that it's, it's, it's a dynamic that we need to utilize to teach the rest of the world free enterprise because they're not practicing free enterprise. They're practicing oligarch uh, enterprise where in China, the large Chinese companies are... <coughs> Uh, committed to Xi Jinping and the Politburo. So they have a monopsony where the government is controlling everything. The monopsony is the other side of monopoly. They're utilizing their oligarchs as monopolies to allow a monopsony then to sell everything. They'll, they'll basically buy it at wholesale and sell it to us at, at, at retail and now they control the flow of profitability in gross domestic products. Because in the process, they, their GDP has grown from 
in the hundreds of thousands to now into the trillions, 14 trillion over the last 20, 30, 40 years under three or four, five presidents that had no idea what they were doing on a global basis. And it's, this is not a shooting war. This is a trade war. We're losing. They're winning. So we have to, with our quasi-reorganization, cut our fixed costs, get rid of this, the size of this government we have at all levels, and all of the 40,000 bills that are proposed every year by these legislatures with no vision of how we're going to win the trade war. Because our country is great. This is what it says. What, what makes America the greatest? But we're vulnerable for non-accountable government and unaccountable leadership. Because we've allowed the two parties to blame each other. And both parties would just as soon be the only party. They would like to have eight years and then extend it to another eight. <coughs> and the red and the blue parties fighting the McCoys and Hatfields is what's ca causing us to lose our vision. And our vision is is that within the Constitution and, the, and democratic government, which is not intended to be top-down, it's meant to be from bottom-up, according to our founders, and the way the Constitution was written would support uh, from the grassroots up to Washington, D.C., or our state capitals. Well, what, what has to change there? Well, the Republic has 50 uh, separate enterprises. Each state has its own responsibility for managing its own gross domestic product. To be profitable, they have to imp implement the same concept I'm talking about uh, globally, is the governors have to be accountable for the leadership of a game plan of quasi-reorganization in their state to start a, a, establishing accountability. They have to be measured. Right now, no governor is measured by anything except the votes that they can, they can attract by spending more money than their opponent. And they don't come up with any game plan for increasing their gross domestic product. Matter of fact, one doesn't know what the other one is. We need to have them competing for the one with the best gross domestic product and the best trade balance and the lowest divorce rate, the lowest abortion rate, the lowest number of guns in circulation, analytics that would not only measure financial success, but societal success. Right now, none of this is done. So the whole plan of quasi-reorganization has to establish accountability at every level, down to the mayors and the county commissioners and to the school boards, and everybody's operating as if we're um, the NFL because we're going to have a Super Bowl and we're going to find which state is the best at leadership managing the processes that haven't been set up yet. We literally have to set up our measuring instrument, which is now going to be the cloud, and 
and the the software and and um, the what do they call it blockchain software, so we can track everything individually and it all grows up into a, a measuring stick for each governor and each mayor, so they now are held responsible not for a budget, that is cash in and cash out, and all of them would have a deficit if they because they include borrowing in the in the cash in side it's 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 been admitted in certain states that we're going to said they were going to go to generally accepted accounting principles what does that mean well that means no longer is is the incurred debt short term current debt and long term debt not included in a set of financial records so we can measure on the accrual basis where we are using generally accepted accounting principles because you're recording what you owe, what you have coming in, and what you're spending. That then would report your surplus or retained earnings. We're talking about earnings. Each state now is a, a, a giant enterprise, which we would not call a monopsy or a monopoly, but a, 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 a free enterprise system where each state is winning the the trade war for their for their workers, they're enterprising Americans. They're enterprising Americans are risk takers. They're willing to risk going with a certain set of companies that are within that state, and those can't, companies need to be measured on the same basis as I'm say we're going to measure um, governors. Presidents of companies need to have some responsibility for what, how they are sharing the wealth that they're creating and how it affects the stakeholders as well as the shareholders. Are they a good participant in the society of their state for not-for-profits, churches, institutions that support uh, the needy, so and and the whole goal is to reduce the number of of needy, uh, which would also be a, a criteria of how how much are you spending on the entitlements, the unemployment, the disability, the food stamps, the the the, the uh, minimum wage, uh, those entitlements that we have labeled as giveaways would no longer be giveaways. They are all a part of a benefit system that enterprising, risk-taking Americans would receive as they, it's called risk and reward, within the, the tenets, 10 tenets of free enterprise, it specifies how there is a whole system of sharing in the gross domestic product of a particular company, of a particular county, a city, and state. And then annually, based on this blockchain software, we can do it now because we have the technology to do that, we're measuring and holding accountable at every level of the republic for the purpose of producing profitability, which is then shared with those that are taking the risk and making the Maharishi. We've got to go there tomorrow at 1130.
they've demanded that they have the results of uh, Sorry, I had to uh, take that phone call. It was uh, from my wife's cardiologist, and we've got an appointment. And so I really wasn't finished. I'm going to try to sum this up uh, and then get it uh, published. But I've been struggling with uh, the podcast in terms of being um, passionate, uh, expressing ideas and and uh, allowing you, the listener, to evaluate or confirm uh, that what I'm saying makes sense. Uh, I come from uh, Iowa. Uh, I'm a depression baby. Uh, In Iowa, we had a strange uh, societal uh, system in Indian Old Iowa, which was called God's Little Acre in the 40s where uh, there was no uh, alcohol allowed, no divorces were uh, almost non-existent because of social pressures. Uh, There was a whole system of work. You had to learn to earn and you had to have a skill to build within this great American system that we have inherited. And so uh, coming from those roots, my wife and I met in junior high school and uh, got married when I was going to college and have been married in 63 years, going on 64. And uh, we're very active and and we're very committed to uh, Americanism, this great country that you don't have to make it great. It's already great. We need to keep it great. And keeping it great is is all about some of the things that I've talked about here. And I learned them. I learned them from one of the greatest companies in America, Arthur Anderson and Company, which suffered from a government takeover, in in my opinion. But anyway, what I learned there was this whole business formula of of profit-making. And how do you, as a leader, lead to that, and it's not ultimate, the, the profit it's, itself is just creating more capital for growth. But anyway, how do you establish leadership within a company, uh, a, a city, a state, and you know the federal government? Is it better to have a few people making all of the decisions or more people making their own decisions which then pursue the objectives of the team, as it is in sports. And that's where I learned uh, my dedication to this whole formula, uh, which I'm calling Americanism, is that we all have our own positions. We choose them. They didn't choose us. If they did choose us, it's on the basis of our effort and our talents. And we play our role within the the team environment that has the objectives to, first of all, be the best, and secondly, to to be a winner, and um, thirdly, to be able to be a um, winning participant in our society. And those societal uh, obligations have to be a part of what I'm calling humanism. Americanism and humanism 
they are bedfellows. Americanism being American capitalism, which is monetary, and the American uh, socialism, which is the human capital, working within the team environment and a set of objectives down to the lowest level. And then you're actually managing upward to the state capital or the city mayor or the uh, or the Washington, D.C., and then we can create from that which is the best performing state. Now the governors would be accountable on a generally accepted accounting principles, how much debt they have that they're going to have to pay off, short term, long term. What is their gross domestic product for their state? And what are the accrued uh, re- receivables that they've got coming in from taxes or other sources, which is borrowing, and what are the accrued expenses that relate to that current operation, and then what have they obligated the the state over a long term to be able to pay for, which should be amortized as you go along, such as pensions, such as health care, such as Social Security, those things that we have obligated the states, the cities, the counties, and you taking it up to the federal level, that's what we have obligated the country for. Well, we don't have a set of books that has it recorded that way. Due to the institutional uh, form of accounting, we are not recording how much the current $31 trillion for the whole country is. It's on the debt clock, but it isn't in the books all the way from the bottom all the way up to uh, the federal government. Why not? Because America is looked at as, an, as the three branches of an institution, not accountable at any level for performance of some objectives. And the, the primary objective is, is to win the trade war. Because somehow, some way, as I've been explaining through this whole dissertation, we've lost our way. We've lost the game, the game of trade. And so how do we get that back? Do we deserve to get it back? Yeah, most of the ideas are coming from our small businesses. And if we continue to choke them to death with, with more laws and regulations, we won't have that. And that's kind of what's happening in, in America because we're being ruled now by the golden rule. Those with the gold shall rule, <clears throat> which is in violation of the Constitution where it envisioned every person in this country would have a chance to be a, per, a participant in managing uh, this giant enterprise. And we find that that isn't the case now. So we have to somewhat, somewhat have not two parties that are gridlocked, but we need to have a third party, or it could be parties, that are swing votes there that are have the collective uh, backing, and it's going to have to be financial for a while because with the backing has to t- turn to what are the um, outcomes. What outcome is the, is the Democratic Party contributing to the 
gross domestic product. What about the Republican Party? Well, they're just stakeholders. Well, stakeholders have an obligation, particularly when they're starting to to affect the overall game plan for the country. So we have to start managing and governing from the bottom up, not continue to have it collectively being dictating from the top down because then we've become China. And we somehow have allowed China to become America because they will find out that they're going to be divided by having uh, what I've called oligarchs or monopolies and they're subservient to the to the Politburo, but eventually at the bottom, the people start to realize that they're not free, they can't make their own choices, so they end up in a you know, in a prison somewhere or having the organs harvested or whatever happens in a in the new Russian um, concept of of what I would call a monopsony, where the the monopsony is the Politburo and they control and decide everything on the basis of uh, what you would find in Orwell's 1984, which is actually brainwashing and, and surveillance and fear, as it was in Animal Farm, where the smart ones took over, and but the workers decided that they uh, weren't going to work. They would just stay home and take entitlements. And does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. So this is all about reversing the trend of America alike. Uh, losing the game of of international trade because to reverse it we have fallen into the same thing that Russia did and China will is that, that they only they only have themselves to protect they're not participating on a global basis we're the ones that set up the United Nations and now we don't even utilize that mechanism on a in a peaceful enterprising manner where we could take America, the greatest idea ever, which is free enterprise, and that's what the Statue of Liberty was given to us by the French, is laissez-faire. This country is built on risk-taking and taking a chance and pursuing the dream, which the, the American dream meaning a successful country. And how do you measure that? Well, it's monetary and societal. And right now we're losing what we were getting after the Second World War. And we have allowed wealth to start to take over, not um, free enterprise effort by all participants in our great society. So that's what this is all about, is saying, yes, the free the American Enterprise Swing Vote Party is being proposed as a way to break the gridlock, to bring forth not the majority, just the authority, to be able to be the swing vote, to to make sure that we're now going to be able to pay our bills, make our money, collect our money, and and have the accountability system at every state level, city level, so we can measure how much uh, profit is being distributed to those that make it work, which are 
or 300 and it's going to be 350 million if we keep the open borders and they're all going to have to work. This Americanism will not work unless those that are taking their share are working. They need to learn to earn and have a skill to build. And I'm going to share with my listeners what happened when I applied that concept to a a troubled nursing home and then other nursing homes, which today are still struggling. So thanks for listening. I'm going to continue to try to do this more passionately and, and just give you the benefit of I've got the free time to do it. I've written some books. I've, I've got a health care for all book which says it should be a government and a, a government and a private enterprise approach to health care. So we hold the providers accountable for outcomes, not incomes. Most of my books are all about what are the problems and, and just some ideas and some proposed solutions. For, thank you for listening and uh, over and out. Okay, maybe we can get through this without the lawnmower. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that one's going to turn out. I have to listen to it. But uh, I think we should talk about how this thing with the third party can focus in on what I'm calling the great American enterprise, which brings the monetary capital and the human capital together like it does in every business, but have it be happen with the Democrats and the Republicans, Mm -hmm. considering the Republicans are the monetary capital and the Democrats who say they are the people party. How can we bring those two together where we actually negotiate and, as Trump would call it, make a deal on what's best for America, not what's best for the party? Because the party always wants control. Mm -hmm. And that's scary because that is 1984. Whoever controls something for four to eight years and then decides that we need to have term limits longer than four years for the president and gets gets somebody that's in there for 20 years like Putin. Mm -hmm. You don't have a democracy. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, right now we don't have a democracy. We've got two McCoys and the Hatfields fighting Mm -hmm. and we're getting deeper and deeper in debt and farther and farther away from our principles of laissez-faire free market enterprise, which is our strength. And it's what our kids are brought up on and, and, and their kids will be hopefully be brought up on. And it's what my parents were brought up in and, and we're risk takers. By nature, Americans are risk takers. And there are people in this country that want to control everything so you don't have to take any risk. It's all given to you. And I think most of us believe that that that's not a great place to be. Uh, you, you look at the places that have said they're going to do that, and that's Russia and China, Venezuela, Cuba. You know, it really doesn't work out in the long run to be what we now hear is a progressive wing of the Democratic Party. It's called Democrat, Democrat, <laughs> Social Democrat, I guess is what... Bernie Sanders labels that as, 
and he's a great fan of Cuba and what Castro supposedly did or was going to do. But that particular model, you know, it could never work in my estimation. I see, and, and the Republicans, I don't believe, have the model either. They have this model of not focusing on the individual, they want to focus on the party, just like the Democrats, the party. And it's focusing on winning the Senate, the, the House, have control of the Supreme Court and the presidency. Trump had it. And how did that work out? And Obama had it. And how did that work out? Well, the people don't like that. I don't care which way you lean, right or left. You're, you're, you start to see this whole thing being a monarchy again. You know, that's what we got away from, from King Edward and, and came to Plymouth Rock, even though 1619 claims they discovered America. Well, anyway, um, the two-party system isn't working out too well. And so... Um, I wanted to discuss a an example of how you can make this work, and it's only on a mic a macro or a micro basis, understanding the model that then is expanded on a mac macro basis and actually keeping America great, not make great America great again. That was a Hitler. That was his motto, make Germany great again. Trump, I think mistakenly, used the same slogan. But it worked out for him. But then he lost the House. He lost the Senate. He lost the presidency. And I voted for him, and I would vote again for him again if he and I could team up and he would choose the American Enterprise Party as the route to go because he believes in enterprise. I mean, he didn't become what he is today, which is an excellent entrepreneur, enterprise uh, representative. Uh, it's more than Republican and Democrat at that point. It represents America, its workers and its investors, its stock market and its its. Federal Reserve, and it's the, the 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 party line, and then then there's the the better line. So, the example. We'll start out and talk about Fox Valley, and the, the surveyors called it Death Valley. And what what is that? Well, that was a a project I took on after I sold my accounting business and software company and really had not much of anything to, to, to look to for the future. So I went in and became the administrator of this troubled nursing home that was owned by a, a rabbi friend of mine that I had. Uh, uh, he was a, he was a uh, lobbyist for a nursing home businesses up and around Chicago. And he befriended me because I was the accountant for the nursing home industry in Illinois trying to set up the um, nursing home rates and improve the quality of care in nursing homes. 
So I sold it off, approached him. He had two nursing homes himself. He was a general partner in what I call Fox Valley, and then he had one in Arizona, and he had one in um, Elgin. Um, no, that was that. He had he had one in uh, Schaumburg or Hoffman Estate. Sorry, but anyway, uh, his administrator at Fox Valley in Elgin was in an automobile accident and was killed. And I offered him a solution that I would come in, get my administrator's license, and help him uh, finance a turnaround so he, he and his partners could exercise the lease, an option to buy the nursing home, so they could sell it. They wanted out of the business, that particular one anyway was a 206-bed skilled nursing facility in Elgin, Illinois. And I was living in Hoffman Estates about a half an hour away. And uh, so I went in, uh, took, over, took over the reins in April of, 19, uh, of 1987, not having my license, never having run a nursing home, Fox Valley had been a client, my a client of my accounting firm, so I certainly had a background in what was wrong with it, and you can smell it from the parking lot. So I'm going to now let Sherry um, tell tell the story of of the progress that we made, and then I'm going to tell you how we did it. Well, I never forget the day that that you were so excited about that place and you wanted Christy to see it, our daughter, and uh, so she and she had a baby, a little boy, and uh, so I whispered to her and I said, "That's okay, but don't let anybody touch the baby because it just smells terrible and and." Uh, We'll just put up with it until we get out of there. And so we go there, and... Um... Sherry gets emotional. <laughs> so do I. Because uh, we, we, we kind of saw... We did kind of been through a miracle there. It was amazing. And we walked in, and there was no odor... And everything and everybody was clean and and Christy said, Mom, this place this is really nice. Yeah. Well, the point being here is that I took over a disaster, not really having a plan because it happened so quick. I had been a graduate of Arthur Anderson, the one of the greatest accounting firms ever. They recruited me out of Simpson College in Iowa. They were looking for liberal arts graduates to be consultants in their uh, healthcare business, and I sort of fit that that model. So then I had been at Arthur Anderson and had left after eight years and went with a smaller accounting firm in Springfield, Illinois, that had 
20 or 30 Catholic hospitals, and my expertise at that point had been through the teams that carried, uh, implemented Medicare and Medicaid in healthcare um, institutions, hospitals, nursing homes, clinics. And so I went to this other um, accounting firm uh, as the Medicare expert and uh, started my own accounting firm. After that experience, I was a partner in a couple uh, larger uh, CPA firms, started my own CPA firm specializing in healthcare, and my specialty in Medicare, and enabled me to be uh, a speaker at, at the at the conventions and and uh, built my business around the the whole um, um, Med- Medicare cost report. How do you deal with the government business? And so again, my expertise was on how you get how do you satisfy the billing processes and can collect the the bills without them denying everything and make money at the same time. So I I had the education when I went into Fox Valley that qualified me to get a a license. And uh, so first day that I was there, I was interviewing. No, actually, I guess it was not the first day. The first day that I was there, the director of nursing quit, the assistant assistant director of nursing quit, and my department heads were all looking at me like I was crazy. And uh, so that's what I inherited was a facility that had uh, been decertified by the, by the uh, surveyors, the Medicare surveyors. They had decertified us so we couldn't get paid by Medicare until we cleaned the place up. And uh, so we, didn't get, we, did, we continued to get paid for Medicaid, but the Medicaid certification could be withdrawn as well. So... Um, Halel Yampelma, the rabbi that I, we were friends, he was the general partner for the limited partnership that owned, that had leased the facility and wanted to sell it. They wanted to get out of that particular location. It was a 206-bed facility. Uh, it had 100, approximately 170-some patients, and I always said I had 179 and I call them patients, not residents. They weren't there to rent rooms. They were there to either die or get out. <laughs> None of them really wanted to stay. And their families didn't want them back. So uh, um, the problem, of course, was is, is how, do we, how do we get them better? Because I, my philosophy was is then the staff will then and enjoy their jobs possibly, and the families will come back. And so I, I had to, I had a plan, even though I had never run a nursing home. And so to give you a little bit of a, of a background on why I'm talking about this is because I had Polish bed makers, I had uh, Hispanics in the in the kitchen doing the food. I have. Uh, Filipino nurses at uh, during the day. I had a night Indian Easter Indian nurses, and they all worked for the state hospital. It was close by, but they, so they were working two jobs. I had Afro American uh, nurses aides. I had 
one else, myself, we had very few um, what I would call wasps, white Anglo-Saxons. And probably most all of the uh, aides and uh, possibly some of the the nurses had to be citizens, but were, were not green card holders. So I always felt that if the FBI showed up wanting to make sure that everyone was a citizen, they probably half my staff would be running out the door. So that was a kind of a collection of different nationalities, colors, religions, you name it. And they kind of teamed up themselves. Um, like I said, the Polish bed makers and the and then the and the the certified nurses aides um had their group and uh kitchen had their group. It was all departmentalized. You work for a department. I call those vertical that's a vertical organization. I wanted a horizontal organization which called a team. Uh that's what I learned at Arthur Anderson is that the thing that will make this work in my mindset, was we have to focus everything on the patient, not the department. We have to focus in on getting people better, not just sitting them in a wheelchair and running and pushing them around. They need to get up. They need to move. They need to walk. They need to be in activities that will improve their functioning. So in my mind, I was creating a new model. Whether I knew it or not, that's what was happening. And when I f- first started interacting with the staff, I had to do it in groups because no one knew the plan. And so I had to outline outline to them how this was going to work. Well, that was in April. By November, I was getting nowhere because people weren't getting it. I was having turnover because we got rid of the the bad actors and tried to keep the better ones. And so I had high turnover. They wouldn't show up on the weekends. Uh, I know one time I was called home at home to get over there because they had the surveyors in at midnight wanting to close us down. And the person that called me said, you're going to have to get here because she said, and this was a, a nurse at night, she says, I've been drinking all day. They, they call me in, and, and I cannot deal with, with these surveyors. So when I got there, I, I was the one that had to deal with the surveyors. So all we could do was for me to explain to them what we were going to do to fix this. Well... The thing I forgot to tell you is within five days after I took over, there was a drowning in a whirlpool in the therapy room. What had happened is this 93-year-old contracted man, gentleman, patient, was in a Hoyer lift where they lift him over the tub and then lower them to give him whirlpool treatments because he was all scrunched up. And the therapist walked away to chart, never supposed to leave the leave the the tub when the patient's in it. She walked away and came back a little later, and the man had gone under. He had somehow had a, 
a seizure or something had flipped out of the Hoyer lift is a sling and he was under and obviously he was dead and so guess what police was there the state was there I was on TV that that evening uh, and I didn't even have a license yet and I didn't have a director of nursing the assistant director of nursing was gone uh, I, I I was it, and they grilled me on TV about, are they going to close you down? What are you going to do? Where's the family? What, what's going to happen? Well, the family was out in the state of Washington. When I called them to explain to them that it was a horrible accident, they said, well, if he didn't suffer, he was 93 and he was not, he was not long for the world, so we we forgive you. Uh, I said, well, would, do you want to come here and pick him up, or do you want us to ship him out there? And they were very nice. They just said, well, just send him here. We'll have the, the funeral there. And the state said, we're going to find you. We're going to put you on probation, and you physically have to go to the therapy room every day to make sure that things are working. I had to submit a plan of correction, and they let us stay open. And I said, I'm going to fix this, I promise you. The next time you come here, it will be better. And then we will have it be one of the exemplary facilities in the state, and we're going to go and earn the six stars that are being handed out to the best facilities. And so when I went back to the staff, I had to tell them the plan and say that this organization is not going to be your departments. It's going to be your team's. And a, a star, you know what a star is? No one knew what a star was. You know, no one had ever explained to them the very thing that we needed to just to motivate all of us to, to a, a goal uh, or an objective and then have the goals to get there. And so I explained what the stars were for, the first being that that you had a care plan and you were orchestrating the care using that that plan. Well, I said, that's going to be our game plan for our teams. And the second thing is that, that, that we have to focus on the patient and we have to be able to show that we're restoring them. We'll do the rehab in the therapy room, but the restorative programs have to be out on the floor. And there's certain things that each team member is going to do to restore them. And the third thing was that we needed to have the families participate. They need to be coming in here. And this place cannot smell. It has to be super clean. And I'll do things to get to make that happen. We're no longer going to have cloth diapers. We're going to have, and we're going to try to get everybody out of diapers. And we're going to try to prevent the accidents. So all of this is going to change. And we'll have it. Uh, assigned to specific functions. And the fourth was is that we have the community coming in and doing uh, things like church and music and and uh, all kind of interactive programs with with the family members and the community. That's four stars. Five stars is that we um, are implementing these restorative programs for psychosocial, for uh, um, restoring their memory, if we can do that, um, walking programs, 
any of those programs that are that are focused on patients' problems, that the state Medicaid program will pick up and pay for after they're off of Medicare. Had to teach them what what really we could bill for and where we could do better. The Medicare rate at that point was $65 a day. Uh, we had three or four Medicare patients because they didn't know how to bill Medicare. They didn't know how to document for Medicare. Well, that was my specialty. By the time I left, after the facility was sold, we had 34 Medicare patients in it and generating a million and a half per year, whereas before they weren't. And the Medicaid program we implemented had all these programs for the different patients, which each one carried with it so much money. The more programs you put in place, the more you got paid by the Medicaid program and the more stars you got for implementing. So that star program was was huge for getting the people up and about and and, and we were discharging. We were we were really keeping track of the number of people that were able to uh, that we admitted that we were able to discharge. And it wasn't a hundred percent, but it was in the area of fifty some percent. <clears throat> and the six star was the fact that the families um were giving us satisfaction support. It mattered what the outcome was for them to then participate in the facility. So in that in that six-star program, which I think was the, the, the best idea ever done by a public health department, and that was in Illinois, and I helped them when my with my accounting firm to, to do, I developed the cost report and helped them devise this six-star system, and now I was there implementing it. But uh, the six-star system lasted about 10 years, best thing ever done for, for Illinois nursing homes, but the large chains couldn't even get a star, and they were dominating the political contributions. So uh, the gal that had set this up in public health left. Myself, I was now running Fox Valley, which is what they called Death Valley before I got it. And so the whole thing, this six-star program, eventually went away because the people that were supporting the political, the, the politicians didn't want it because it forced them if they were going to get, and it was more the status than anything. If you're a six-star facility, you're the best in the state. Well, none of their facilities were getting the stars. So it became political at that point. But anyway, the point being that by the time um, I helped get the financing to for the partners to exercise their lease and buy the facility, and the strategy was as soon as they bought it, they would sell it because they want they didn't want they didn't want to continue with it. Because one of the first things I did when I went there is I I cut off the payments to the partners. They were getting their checks as investors return on their investment first, and I didn't have enough money for for uh, uh, food and diapers and and all the things it took to be able to to get the six stars. And uh, we didn't borrow any money. Our staff just I, I I during I don't know if I told the snowstorm story or not where. Um, uh, we got snowed in in November 
um, 16th, I remember. The facility did, 16 inches of snow. Half the staff couldn't even get there. The director of nursing didn't even try. And so the assistant director of nursing called me, and I couldn't get there because I couldn't get out of the house for two days. And she wanted to know what to do because she had only half the staff. So then we decided that she had to, the teams had to focus in on their functions. And, and we really had, didn't have, <laughs> have all this set up because I'd only been there six months and I thought I was making it worse. So what happened with the snowstorm, and I call it an epiphany, was that when we finally got, and my assistant director of nursing and the aide, lead aide, they implemented a lot of the things I'd been talking about and were implementing them. But by, by the time I got there, the, the place still had odor because we'd only been working on that for six months. And uh, it, it just felt different. People weren't, there, there were half the staff, so we didn't have people just couldn't find them or didn't know what they were doing or running into each other or whatever. And things were getting done. I, I could feel it. And so my my point was, is if we can run this place with half the staff, why are we, what are the rest of the people doing all day, all night? Well, the obvious answer was, is that uh, these people, the people that were there were much more productive and focused on the patients, not on their department or their paycheck or, you know, getting off at five o'clock or whenever, seven o'clock. So the epiphany then was that we can run this place. And we had 179 patients. And like I said, 179 patients didn't want to be there, 179 staff that didn't want to work there, and 179 families that would, didn't, wouldn't come there. So using this whole concept of team concept, we eventually got the six stars in an 18-month period. Then we had 205 patients out of 206 beds of patients that wanted, they were happy to be there, but they wanted to get better and leave. I had uh, 170 some uh, staff. I didn't need a one-on-one -on -one staff for at that point because they were productive and efficient, and those and those hundred and seventy some liked working there, and did show up. And my turnover rate was reduced, and my, my absentee rate was reduced, and the productivity and efficiency was excellent. And then I had two hundred six, two hundred five families that would come there, and we were getting. You know, progressively, we got the first survey, we got three stars, then we got four. Then we, on the third time around, every six months, at the 18th month, we got six stars. So what we what the partners were selling was an excellent facility. There was no odor. We had been recertified for Medicare. Medicaid program was paying us for these other additional programs. The revenue was up $2 million dollars. Or three million for the eighteen month period, they were able to borrow the money and and buy the facility exercise their lease option and then sell it for double what they bought it for and they were out of it, and I was out of it I had to 
since I had done this on contract, that was a basically a turnaround contract. I should have been on a commission, which I wasn't, unfortunately. And I went to another facility that was owned by a, a contact they had who was the president of, of the Adventist nursing home, nursing home group, 50 nursing homes. And this one is in... Uh, in a in an adjoining suburb, Glendale Heights is called Carrington, two hundred and ten beds, same situation, horrible condition, not making losing a hundred thousand a month. The Adventists had taken over fifty nursing homes. They didn't know how to run one, and the and the president of the company knew me. He had used to been with Beverly Enterprises, a, a company that owned twelve hundred nursing homes and finally dissolved because they couldn't run them. But he got me in on a contract. I did the same thing with, with that facility. And in 22 months, it was sold. And I was out of a contract, and I decided, I don't think I want, want to continue to do this because it was sold to a chain. And when the chains buy them, they bought Fox Valley, which the surveyors called, called Death Valley. They They bought it turned it right back into a warehouse, whereas I had converted it to a care house. And when I went to the other facility, Carrington, uh, I turned it around in 22 months, and the Adventists were dispo- getting out of the nursing home business. And Ray Tutwiler, uh, uh, my mentor there, and Halal Yampel, the rabbi at Fox Valley, I continued to have relationships with, and they had me come and help them with the nursing homes that they were acquiring. But I was now doing it with a consulting firm and resurrected my um, software business. And from that point on, we ended up uh, putting our system in 140 nursing homes in 22 different states, basically uh, implementing an enterprise model which I now have codified in a book called Healthcare for All on how we could uh, take the nursing home industry that is blighted by too big of organizations where the owners never go there and convert it to an, to a, um, what do you call it, franchise business. <laughs> each, each facility would be in what I had foresaw was an all-American care facility where we, my son and my wife and I, and my son and I had had developed software for managing the nursing homes, um, acquire them, uh, uh, fix them up. They would be the uh, D.C. White House, named after Sherry's mother, Dortha C. White, uh, who was basically a killed in a nursing home prior to us getting getting into this. So these were in her memory. And we had we bought three, two in Iowa and one in Arkansas, and then did, converted them to what I'm talking about now, the model, which uh, they were all, they were old brick buildings that we painted white. They looked like new. We restored the interior, converted the staffing to the teams, put in our software, and we were billing Medicare and Medicaid and making money doing it. 
But every time the surveyors came, they wanted to get you for something because that was their job. And they made life miserable for my staff and for us. And at, at the point where I saw I wasn't going to be able to take this whole concept of having each nursing home in these small towns, particularly in Iowa, around the, world, around the country that are going to go out of business because there's no focus on doing what I was proposing. And you'd have to acquire another 20 to be even be able to, to deal with the government when it comes to the so-called standards of care, which they are minimum standards. They should be maximum standards. And if you're attaining the maximum standards, you get the six stars and you get recognition and you get the money that fulfills having a great staff and getting people better and out. And we save the Medicare and the Medicaid program in billions. But of course, as it tells in my book, uh, that's never going to happen because the government is a monopsony. They run everything <coughs> in the healthcare business. So uh, I am opinionated on that, but quite, you know, quite experienced in what the solution could be. So that is my story about nursing homes. What do you got to say for that, Sharon? <laughs> Since you were administrator, Sherry was the administrator of our Washington facility in Iowa. I was the administrator in Muscatine, um, and we both were running the, the the Arkansas facility with some people that we'd worked with in other places, and it was hard. Uh, surveyors just wouldn't let you. Go. They they wouldn't let the staff do their job. They wanted departments, not teams. Oh, come on. Teams are the uh, are the things that work. They never embraced anything they would. They never gave us credit for turning these ugly, stinking things into something that was nice. They just wanted to make life miserable, and and that's a bureaucracy. Uh, and, and our vision was as the franchise that the owner would be there every day. Ownership, you take you take these things on, and you own them. You're responsible. And if you don't fulfill that, they throw you in jail. Okay, well, our concept is in a franchise, the owner would be there every day fixing problems along with the staff and leading the staff as a team, and they could implement what we had, and we would have exemplary care on a broader scale, particularly in the rural uh, rural America. Well, but, the thing with, with your method is uh, the whole... Thing of having teams rather than just uh, you know the CNAs and the you know that that didn't work because there was no teamwork. But with by having teams and calling them teams, that's how they saw themselves and they were much more determined. And of course, uh, you know, as they saw the care get better, the odor go away, that it was clean and people were coming to visit. And uh, so the whole experience just turned into a major positive and uh, makes me proud. <laughs> yeah, we we still have a, a sticks in our craw of, of how nursing homes are blamed for everything when it is actually it's a real estate business to the to the larger chains. 
it's not the people business. And, it, and it's un- unfortunate because, you know, you, you hear the disasters happening in nursing homes and the nursing homes need to be regulated more and they, they need to have more staff and they need to do this and that. And, and we're here to say none of that's true. No, it's, it's, it's the fact that the whole industry is built around um, not just the profit motive. It, the profit motive can be positive. It's around this whole thing. As, as the more real estate that you own, the more power that you have. And so it's the power people. And it's not just capitalists. It's any politician will tell you that nursing home business is, is what is it, it is what it is. Well, no, it, it is what it is until somebody comes along like any other franchise with a better idea. We had a better idea. We still feel that that is the solution. Well, and in and, and our nursing homes, the staff actually loved their patients, and that's the whole feeling you got when you came in the facility. It was clean, it didn't smell bad, and the, the way the staff responded to the patients was uh, we had many of our customers or, you know, our clients that had staff or had patients there commented on the fact that the love that they felt when they came into the facility by what the, the our patients were uh, receiving from our staff. And it was just really... Um, I, I felt like it was one of the best parts of my life was when we were doing that. I was very proud of it. Yeah, and as we sit here around the kitchen table, I still uh, would hope that uh, some of the ideas that, that we uh, implemented and worked and are documented in my books would would be picked up on. But it takes money to make money, I guess. And uh, so, um, just thought we would do this particular podcast about this idea. So, if you want to pick up the book, Healthcare for All, uh, you can maybe read about how we did this and why it should should be done by. Uh, other capitalists and socialists and whatever party you vote in. So thanks for listening. Bye now. About the podcasters, 63 plus years married, 80 plus years healthy, happy, and prosperous. Jerry Rhodes, a young 83, has had over 60 years experience in healthcare and government. He is a CPA and a licensed nursing home administrator. He has owned an accounting firm, a consulting business, and a software business servicing long-term care and skilled nursing homes. Considered an expert in Medicare and Medicaid regulations and management of operations, he has authored nine government-dominated healthcare-related books. Shari Rhodes, a younger 82, is a trained cosmetologist, nursing home owner, administrator, and business partner with Jerry and their son Kip Rhodes, a computer expert, for 30 years. She is also Jerry's editor of 17 books, and is the mother of four grown children, 12 grandchildren, 
and eight great-grandsons, and three great-granddaughters. All the while finding time to paint, dance, stay fit, and planning to extend their marriage well beyond their 63rd wedding anniversary November 27, 2022, making their marriage one in a million in this millennium. They and their son Kip also have owned three skilled nursing facilities and consulted with 140 nursing homes and managed four others during their 40 years specializing in nursing home operations and government regulations concerning Medicare and Medicaid. The nursing homes were sold 2015, after restoring them, and converting them to All-American Care Restorative Care Model. The plans for those projects are chronicled in Jerry and Shari's books The Boomers Are Coming, Failing Government Taketh Away, Healthcare for All, America in the Red Zone, American Enterprise Manifesto, Americana, a novel revisiting George Orwell's 1984, Remedy Elder Side, Restore Elder Pride, and Five Wonders of the World Poetry Books that Express a Wonderful Life in Poetic Terms. What inspired you to write books, as a family memoir, to commensurate our 63-year marriage, a one in million odds, and our real, biological, age score 20 years younger than our chronological age of 80 plus, we want to reveal our 12 marriage vows, and habits that have enabled us to get this far. We hope it will be a template for relationships forming lifestyles that solve marital problems that lead to chronic aging. Over 50% of all marriages, 2.4 million per year, result in divorce. And 117 million Americans have at least one chronic disease diagnosis code. 25% have one to four comorbidity chronic diseases. Also, the researchers have found that a happy marriage contributes to a longer, healthier, and stronger life. So, staying married is number one for aging healthy. The rest are related to lifestyles, without exercise, poor food selection, and aberrant habits that cause an unhealthy immune system, susceptible to viruses such as COVID-19, and its variants. Because America's healthcare is being run by a bureaucratic public healthcare system, as a one-payer system called a monopsony, buyer of last resort. While warp speed medical professionals should be in charge to be able to use treatment measures rather than wait for the magic vaccination by public health. The 99 of the top 100 paid bureaucrats are public health officials that don't seem to put America's health outcomes first and politics second. Then Vice President chose the members of the Public Health Task Force, with Anthony Fauci as chairman, that took over the response to the pandemic not President Trump and his cabinet. For example, while Dr. Fauci, an immunologist, is the highest-paid government official and makes more than the president who was ex-officio singly running America for three years, not our President Trump or replacement President Biden, covering up his involvement in the virus getting out of the Wuhan lab, that he had under contract for gain-of-function studies, without triaging cases or using natural immunity as a preventive strategy, leading to patients being transferred to 77,000 nursing homes that were not equipped or allowed by law to treat pandemic patients that infected other patients and provider staff, while not allowing families access their loved ones, resulting in ongoing political use of the pandemic to elect a new president and keep Americans in fear for the purpose of mandating vaccinations, masks, social distancing, quarantines, church, non-essential small business, and school closings, while big businesses and government were designated essential so they got their paychecks and stimulus incentive to work. Especially, during the pandemic of 2020-21 the overall health of Americans is not good. Chronic disease, and chronic aging are subjects we deal with in our book. Currently 117 million Americans suffer from one or more chronic illnesses traceable to aberrant lifestyles. Researchers attribute better health to married couples who avoid behavioral problems linked to divorce. The 12 marriage vows and habits covered in our books are based on defining the root cause of the lifestyle problems and proposes 12 solutions for staying married and healthy getting happiness that, Shari, and I got over in our 60-plus years of marriage. 
So, our current podcast Broken Political Systems, is about out-of-date politics, misinterpreting American capitalism, and American socialism keeping American enterprise great using humanism, aka Americanism. Downsize government, upsize enterprise using private enterprise organizations. ESG stakeholders served by profitable shareholders is for the greater, and individual good. This evolution of political parties can be painless, using my American Enterprise Party swing vote concept, of allowing enterprising American workers to have a political party, not a national trade union, but a platform for balancing the golden rule, those with the gold rule, with the political consensus for rule of laws, regulations and profits to suit all American citizens' aspiration. Recognizes the benefits of the pursuit of prosperity individually, and collectively allows America to stay number one in the world of oligarchs, dictators, warlords, and 8 billion human beings on earth. With American capitalism, and American socialism to generate a balanced supply lines, better worldwide health and fitness using better diets, preventive health measures, and health preservation being the platform for populating free market enterprise workers, rather than fiefdoms. All of this is covered in my books, with the American Enterprise Swing Vote Political Party Trilogy, being the centerpiece for solving social and health problems worldwide using technology tools, such as the cell phone, and cryptocurrency for expanding small businesses worldwide, Africa being a template, for a great example of how individual enterprise, and franchising ideas, beats conglomerate NGIs every time, for new technologies, cost-effectiveness, and profitability.